We talk a lot about anti-racist action throughout It Did Happen Here, and in episode four, we talked about the Minneapolis Baldies, the skinhead crew responsible for bringing ARA to the collective consciousness of early 90s anti-racist activism in the U.S. punk scene. We had to leave a lot of good conversations on the cutting room floor, and in this bonus episode, we invite you to a deeper conversation of the minds that came out of Minneapolis and Chicago, who they were then, the choices they made, and where they are now. In this episode, you will hear from Maokai, a.k.a. Mickey, as well as Marty, both black skinheads from Skinheads of Chicago, or Shock. Shock was a multiracial, anti-racist skinhead crew that was close to the Minneapolis Baldies. The Baldies founded anti-racist action, and Shock were crucial early allies in battles against Nazi boneheads in the Midwest. And the friendships between members of Shock and the Baldies were like family. We'll also hear from Lorraine, Mike's old friend from the Baldies, who describes what it was like to be a teenage girl and anti-racist skinhead in a scene that focused on and glorified young men. We'll talk to Gator, who along with me, was one of the founders of both the Baldies and ARA. We'll also hear from Obonix, aka Mo, another Baldy and black skinhead, who is still one of my best friends. You'll hear some stories and thoughts from me from conversations and interviews that were also in episode four. You're gonna hear us talk about people of color, specifically black, brown, and indigenous people who were involved in a movement that was anti-racist, but that was predominantly white. The contradictions that non-white members of this movement faced were deep and were also a microcosm of larger issues that play out in the identity struggles and battles for self-determination and political orientation in this racist society. I'm Selena Flores. And I'm Mike Crenshaw. We're your hosts for this bonus episode of It Did Happen Here, the Minneapolis Baldies and Anti-Racist Action Part 2. When I was a shorty, I was the choir director of the church that I was in. And they used to always say, he's going to be a preacher, he's going to be a preacher. Touch, they used to call it touch. You, know? you got the touch? Touch. Or you by yeah. ordained, if you will. You were right, touched. right. Of course, that never happened, but Mm -hmm. I think ultimately the concept was you're a person who will create, you're a person who will lead, you're a person who will do something, you know, in this world. This is Maokai, a.k.a. Mickey. Mickey was a black skinhead, a member of Shock, Skinheads of Chicago. And so when I was in the skinhead movement, I'm quiet at first, right? I can watch, I can observe. I like to observe. I don't like to just jump in. But eventually it became, what are we going to do? Jabari, we used to work together at a bookstore called Rizzoli in Water Tower mm-hmm. down on Michigan Avenue. Jabari was a former member of Shock and a black skinhead from Chicago. He helped me get the job there. I was in school at Columbia College. Mm-hmm. And we would be back there reading, bro, and sparring and conversing. And we started talking about what we're going to do. So that's when ARA came up. That's when Syndicate came up. Really what kind of jumped it off, bro, was one night we got into a fight with the Bomber Boys. Chris, white guy. And um, he used to rock a swastika and, and Dwayne used to stick up for him. Oh, he cool, whatever, whatever. Bomber Boys were an early skinhead crew from Chicago that was dominant before the days of shock. The Bomber Boys had black members like Dwayne, but were not anti-racist. Some of their members were white power. Like, no, he not cool. He got in my face, older than me. He was one of the toughest skins in Chicago, right? 
And we got into it, man. And it was an all out brawl. And I whooped his ass in front mm -hmm. of everybody. And after that, we were like, this shit is over. We taking over the scene. Y'all done. It was really after running away, so to speak, to Uptown when I was 11. Mm -hmm. This is Lorraine talking about how she got involved with the Baldies. Was bouncing around for a couple years, in and out of the bridge. Wow, yeah, the homeless. Was it like a homeless it, or runaway youth it was service youth, program? Yeah, and mm -hmm. then trying to behave. I got out of junior high. It was really after junior high, ninth, before ninth grade. Going to school with some of the faces I had seen uptown. Danny Mills, Jay Nevels, mm -hmm. Maggie Malloy, yeah, met myself. Yeah. I think Pat was Patrick there when Patrick you, was still there. Yeah. At yeah. what point did you decide I'm going to be a skinhead? When I sh shaved my head, it was really more about being mm. accepted by mm. this group. Mm -hmm. I wanted acceptance and to be part of something. Okay, but yeah. what definitely mm. helped was. Mm. This guy that I liked. And who was, was Spencer? Yeah, at okay. the time, one yeah. was like, let's do that. And I'm like, okay, yeah. But I didn't like that it was this like relationship connotation, like I was doing it with this boyfriend. That's And that bugs me in hindsight. The skinhead culture is male-dominated. Mm -hmm. Everything's centered around the tough guy. Right. With the big ego. And so then the skinhead girl is seen more as a counterpart to the guy right. as opposed to like an independent autonomous like right. person. So it was kind of a combination for me. Yeah. But also I had seen I just met Becky Lewis. I'm like, mm. Becky shaved her head. Mm. But I'd been hanging around a little bit before cutting my hair. But then it's like I wanted to be more down and mm -hmm. be part of the group. I wanted to prove my own toughness. How long after you got involved with the Baldies was there violence? It was a little fast and furious for me. How yeah. I remember, I think I shaved my head in like ninth grade. And then like, once I did cut my hair and then yeah. not like you can not be seen by the racist crews or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, we get asked a lot, those of us who are veterans of this movement, um, what people who are who want to be active today and who can be active should take from us in terms of organizing or methods or strategies or tactics. And um, I have to be really honest and clear about the fact that I think what made us strong during my time when I was the most active and engaged is that we were friends and we loved each other and we approached the struggle and the activity from that basis. You're about to hear from Gator, AKA Jason, another founding member of the Minneapolis Baldies, who you've heard talk before. I think with the Baldies, it was just Man, we didn't have nothing to lose. It just took off. It was like a, a natural progression of kids being kids and us trying to figure out what we were as people anyway. To me, the best part about it, when you take away the, the overt political ideologies and the violence, it was really about friendship. When I found the Baldies, that was the first time I really felt at home. Nobody was telling me I wasn't black enough or right. nobody was telling me I was too black. We all had that unconditional respect for each other. All the best group of friends that I've ever had throughout my whole life have always been 
a mix of everybody. Black kids, white kids, native, Asian, all kicking it together. It's always different if it's like all black kids, all white kids, all native, it's a different kind of vibe. Do you remember driving around with Stacy, me, you, and Stacy mm -hmm. in the car one day? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm like, where are you going, Mike? I'm gonna go throw a brick through mm -hmm. Paul Hollis's window. And I was like, well, why? Paul Hollis was a Klan member and a leader of the White Knights, a neo-Nazi skinhead crew in Minneapolis. You're like, well, why not? Yeah, why not? Right, right. So like pretty much after that, I kind of had this attitude like, well, yeah, why not? And then someone mm -hmm. was talking, we were talking about educate first and mm -hmm. then ass kick second. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then I remember trying to do that after that summer and trying to talk to those guys and I was into direct action. After our big ARA meeting mm -hmm. in the library, someone's house had got firebombed through the mm -hmm. window. Someone's parents. Mm -hmm. I think it was Brandon Samford's house. The hearsay was the girl that gave the list away was a blonde punk girl named Linda. And this is the hard part for me. Mm -hmm. I haven't even been able to talk about this. But I kicked her ass out in the parking lot, and that was the first time I'd ever hurt someone like that. I blacked out though while I was doing that. And I vaguely remember and that. You, and you told yeah. me to not, you said that is enough for rain. That haunted me ever yeah. since. I felt so bad the next day because I'm like, oh my God, for one, that was hearsay. And there I am acting mm -hmm. stupid and blacking out. Like mm -hmm. basically every rage moment in my life came out on that poor girl. You mentioned drinking heavy, it was drinking heavy a reflection of dealing with the trauma of the violence and... No, that okay. was my relief from my own personal life. Mm. And then it ended up being part of our thing we do together, like yeah. me and my girlfriends. Or yeah. Because I know most of the kids didn't drink like that. When the group first started, it was mostly straight edge. No one, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Me, I started drinking and then Becky and Greeny yeah. and we yeah. started drinking like drinking after school and stuff yeah which a lot was my idea but <laughs> no with linda like i don't know if i need to go on oprah and apologize to linda <laughs> i'm like i don't know if i'm gonna get killed amy foreman just be like linda joined the army and she's gonna kill your ass <laughs> and then i would be scared i'd be like shit i'm gonna get killed by linda it became national when we connected with y'all, mm -hmm. the cats up in Milwaukee and the people in Portland, Frisco, yep. and we started traveling and then speaking in front of audiences. This is Malachi again. Mm -hmm. And then it became a matter of me reconnecting because you got to understand there was a point where there was, there was a, um, a question mark about diversity for me. My parents were Panthers, they were not. And then my dad subsequently became a nationalist out of the Panther movement, which was proletarian and considered diverse to, to the extent that they worked with about whether men and, and whomever else. But my dad eventually became a nationalist. And mm -hmm. so it was all about Pan-Africanism and pure black nationalism. And so yeah. he and I were at odds about my white girlfriend at right. the time, mm -hmm. my white friends at the time. Yeah. But I saw unity in the diversity. However, 
once I started reading Garvey and started reading Malcolm and started reading other things, mm-hmm. I then found myself moving in a nationalist direction as well. But during my time as a skinhead, it was just pure love for my brothers. Yeah. But I began to see some things that I didn't like in the white skinheads who were anti-racist. Mm-hmm. They were not rejecting their white privilege. And I saw that through examples of us being arrested. Marty used to get arrested every weekend, bro. Right. They would never take none of the white kids. And of course, eventually that kind of shit started clicking for me. And yeah. I was like, what's going on? And then I would get arrested. Me and Sonny, we all got arrested we all, all the time. We all over there, me and Adam. Me and Adam. Yeah, was, Adam, was Adam yeah. Will, yeah, Quinn. And we got, just for being in the alley, just we for got being arrested. There. Will, Quinn, Sonny, and Adam were all black skinheads in Chicago. Those things started to stand out to me, and I wasn't remiss to that. And the white kids didn't understand it. And so eventually, that was what made me move away from the skinhead movement. And I was just like, man, this ain't right. And so with the music, with P.E. and X-Clan and some of the other BDP, it just started to speak to me differently. And I had to take my leave from from that and I, and I grew dreads and started understanding, you know, moving in a different direction. Here I talk about a fight I got in that was one of many turning points for me. A lot of us were out on the streets and, you know, we used to be together in groups. Usually on the weekend, Friday or Saturday night, we were out looking for a party. We got word that there was a party in a hotel downtown. It became clear when we got to the party that it was mostly black people from North and South Minneapolis neighborhoods that were culturally not mixed. They were the black people that hung around black people. We didn't belong there because we were a mixed crew and there was a bunch of white kids with us and we were punk rock. And so at that point I had a very tense reckoning about my own internal identity struggle where I wanted to connect with my people but being committed to the hardcore punk scene was alienating me from my people that was an uncomfortable thing for me to have to face at the same time we got to the party people started making fun of my crew because of the way we dress we were wearing combat boots Doc Martens and skinny jeans and flight jackets and we did not fit in and everyone at the party was looking at us like clowning us making fun of us verbally and a couple people started like trying to pick fights with people in the crew some of the white guys and this is a position i've been in numerous times where white kids in my crew were be targeted by people of color who were like making fun of them or whatever thinking that they were weak and so I would stand up and defend them and then all of a sudden be faced with this conflict like what the fuck am I doing I'm defending them against my own people what does that say about me and so it was in one of those moments that I chose to defend the honor of my crew a lot of the white people in the crew got on a bus and left and myself David Jeffries and Chase Hulo Chase, who was Hmong, David and I are black. We stayed behind while they all left. And I stood up to one of the brothers, one of the other black people who were at the party, who was making fun of the white boys in my crew. 
Not only did I stand up to him, I forced him to get off of the bus that he had got on to leave the situation and come fight me one-on-one. And we fought one-on-one for about 20 minutes until the police came and broke it up. And on that walk home, I really had to look deep inside of myself and ask myself, what was I fighting for? What was I fighting for? That was a very hard night for me. Something shifted in me that night that was was always there inside of me as far as struggles around identity that I faced as part of my life. But it became clear that my survival was separate from the survival of the crew. It's one thing to fight against violent racists, but I can't I can't fight against my people. In a white supremacist society, I cannot be physically fighting with my people unless I'm forced to do so. That fight brought to the surface all these unanswered questions that I was struggling to answer about who I was, who I needed to be, and what my priorities should be. I remember um, fighting the White Knights and mm-hmm. like mob. That was a big deal. Yeah, and it yeah. still is. Yeah. Like, yeah, it bugs me that that shit is still going on. And that's kind of how I, in Uptown at the time when there's swastikas being spray painted yeah. and stuff. I was like, "Fuck this! We gotta kick their ass and get yeah. them out of here." What allowed you to move on? Probably. Well, I really scared myself beating that girl up, but. When it seemed to get just crazy, I remember we were partying at someone named Rob, my friend Robert from the Art Academy's house. Mm-hmm. But it was I heard this? about the MCAD fight, but I wasn't yeah, and there. Yeah, broke out like everything in his house. Mm-hmm. And then like my uncle had a kegger and mm-hmm. everyone ended up fighting my uncle and his friends. And I was like, fuck. So yeah. pretty much after that, and I was really trying to get to like, who is Lorraine? And then I'd start yeah. hanging out tight with Leon and I'm like, mm-hmm. Well, Leon's studying dance. Well, what was I studying before all this madness? I was studying theater. So then I started to, I think, 15, grow my hair back. So it was a really short jaunt. Yeah, yeah. As far as being on their boots and braces and bald-headed. Thirty years later, we're all grappling with the differences between what we faced in the Reagan era and what we're looking at right now. Those of us who were involved on a personal level and an individual level, we've all grown older. Those of us who didn't commit suicide or get killed um, or, or you know succumb to some disease, those of us who are still around and healthy and relatively active, we have more to lose. And the the willingness to go out into the street and engage and even actively hunt down violent racists is something that is different when you're middle-aged. There's also the, the external reality that the state has escalated the way that it criminalizes and persecutes and convicts people for political organizing and political violence. We see historically that the state has not only protected white supremacists, but it seems as if they allow white supremacists to operate 
under these bullshit constitutional protections of freedom of speech, knowing that they're going to provoke and incite violence. And then they use that opportunity to then go after the anti-fascists and the anti-racists and criminalize them for responding to the white supremacist threat. We know that there's a lot more at stake in the way that the state responds to our activity, especially if it's going to have person-to-person violence or organized violence. Third, there's the surveillance aspect. There are fucking cameras everywhere. People aren't always aware of the fact that what they do is being recorded by cameras that might not even intentionally be trained on the activity, but just because security and paranoia and the prevalence of the technology that's affordable to business owners and whatever, there's cameras everywhere. And then lastly, there's the device culture that we live in, in which everybody's got a telephone and everybody's recording shit. If they see something interesting, if they see violence, they want to take out their telephone and record it. All these things come into play when we think about what's at stake when you decide that you have to take a stand and confront somebody. The consequences of that have to actually be part of our consciousness and have to be part of our organizing strategy when we're trying to figure out how to engage these people. So to summarize it, back in the day, you find out where they were and you go fuck them up. Now there's a lot more to it. And I think a lot of these rallies and these demonstrations, we've been taking losses, getting stabbed. And there's a couple of these fascist fuckers that have been going around beating people on camera. They get canonized as heroes in the media and they're allowed to walk around freely and do this where I know if I was on camera kicking someone's ass in three different cities, <laughs> I'd be gone for like 25 years. It's an interesting time. And, and these guys have really been the racists, the right wing, the religious right, the Proud Boys, all the different toxic conservative elements have all been emboldened by the atmosphere created by this administration. Here I am talking to Mobonics, a black skinhead and a baldy. You put me up on game when we were kids. We were getting recruited into the Communist Labor Party. We were going to a lot of meetings. We were the only two that were really committed to some of these study groups and, and things that was really attractive to me because it was like a higher level of organization. And to this day, some of the political consciousness that that helped me develop has been central to the analysis that's helped me to have a sharper understanding. But at the same time, there were contradictions that you put me up on. You were like, Mike, man, we've gone to all these meetings with all these old revolutionaries, but have you noticed that they all own houses? They all have houses. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have houses? No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. You know, I take game on that one quick. Like, oh, they don't have bins and shit, though. Like, hmm. Yeah. This is different. Doing good works, though, and a lot of thinking. Mm-hmm. But the shit that was happening, I can't say that overall, did that make a bigger impact than just putting a couple knuckles down, though? Right. <laughs> you know? What made the bigger impact? Running them out of town? Or was it being like, well, we, got, we know you guys are here, but if we can just figure it out, and then we get a little bit of equity in pay, and a little bit of equity in ownership, or maybe the SBA get a little bit loans here, the bank gave one black guy a loan, so you see, the bank's not all bad. And I was talking to my brother last week in, in Minneapolis, and he was talking about the neo-Nazis or the, or the Clan or whatever you want to call them, the boogaloos or whoever the fuck they are. Yeah. You know, they're pulling up at night. If you're black out there, kind of by yourself, maybe one or two groups, they'll open fire on you to the point where, even till last night, the brothers that have their concealed carry permits 
are patrolling the neighborhood that make sure those elements can't circulate and do that anymore. Wow. There'll be a couple groups of brothers in a couple different cars cir- circulating on the north side, up and down Broadway, Penn area, Plymouth, and you know, all, the little, all the, you know, the areas in the, the neighborhood on the north side. It was white dudes in pickup trucks, they take the plates off, and they'll just open up on anybody black walking, walking around, like to the point where like, women and children are afraid to go out, the, out of the house. That's really fucked up because um, I think a lot of us have felt like those guys are cowards in the sense that like they want to go and catch you slipping over in their areas, like what happened with Ahmaud Arbery. Right. They're not really bringing it to our area because they'll get handled. That's been the narrative. Back in the day, man, they weren't always just cowards. They didn't always just take an ass whooping, you know. They were some of the first ones that would pull out a gun or something. They were the first ones that had, like, the crossbows and some shit that would kill you. They were the ones that introduced that shooting out of windows and shit at people and shit like that. Real talk. Because it wasn't us doing that. We didn't have no fucking guns. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I don't think none of us got. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't use guns. That wasn't even what we was. We weren't even on that. Here I talk about the messy, dysfunctional, and self-destructive strains of the radical left, whilst acknowledging the need to be self-critical and embrace accountability. Around the end of Occupy, I started to see this thing happen that I also saw in the '80s, where the radical left was more eager to call each other out and tear each other down than to produce any type of meaningful base of activity for the working class to seek liberation in their communities. You know, it, there, there became this kind of insular infighting culture that I didn't want to have anything to do with specifically because in a lot of those spaces, I was one of the only people of color. I was one of the only black people. And I'd be like, I, God damn, if I'm going to spend my time around a bunch of fucking white people who want to tear each other up, I got more important shit to do. So I stopped fucking with that scene for those reasons. And I see that that same thing happening now. And you, you've heard all the cliches and adages about with friends like that, you don't need enemies. It's like we do the work of the state for the state by tearing each other up and rendering ourselves ineffective. And what I'm looking at right now is how do I organize? How do I take the, the skills that I've developed from years of organizing in left circles, in left movements, How do I take those to the broader working class communities that I'm actually from? What do I have to contribute to my black community, my working class black folks, my poor striving and struggling, my lumping black proletariat, my cats that are in their own ways already organized, coming from gang culture? I really need to be part of building movement from that base. These racist attacks from all these different elements on the right are actually serving to pull some of us out of the woodwork that have been comfortable doing our own thing in our own way for a while and bring us together and create this sense of unity around these questions. Like how do we not only defend our communities, how do we protect ourselves and how do we let it be known that that shit is not going to fly over here. If you come over here with that shit, you're not going to fucking leave in one piece. How do we protect ourselves in an environment where we're, we're already hyper-criminalized as black folks in relation to the prison industrial complex. There are so many divisive means and ways that are ingrained in the system to get us off the street, out of our communities, and incarcerated or in the fucking grave. From police violence, where one of us gets killed every 28 hours, to this fucking mandatory minimum sentencing, where you got young people being sentenced as adult and going to jail for five to ten years for life sentences, for something that uh, 
really could be a teachable opportunity in a sense of like restorative justice. There's a lot of complexity that we all have to be looking at. It's a pivotal moment. This is me and Mobonics again. One of the, the things I always struggled with when I was a kid, uh, some of my black elders would be like, you know, you can have white friends, but one day they're going to be white on you. And I would be like, don't say that. That's mean. <laughs> <laughs> That's mean. Don't say that. But then as you get older into adulthood, you start to understand the fantasy that we were living doesn't really sustain in the reality that we're living, you know? Exactly. Out of all the people that I know, I have yet to know a white kid that gets shot down the back running from the police. And unfortunately, we've known countless, you know, either one degree of separation or no degree of separation, resulting in death or, or everything less than that even, you know, more often, more often so, just brutality. Real talk, it's, it's a trip reflecting on George Floyd. You know, that's your old neighborhood. You right. Know? And remembering the streets, watching the tape and remembering... You know, just knowing how, 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 how the air feels in May in Minneapolis. Pent up energy from all that time and the winter and shit, it makes me so proud because that's like the natural progression after the years of the struggle that, that we laid down the foundation for. And maybe the best thing is not to burn down your local grocery store, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's like, did they get the fucking point afterward, though? Right. Kieran and I have been talking a lot lately about people trying to say, well, it was, a, it was either these alt-right dudes or the undercover police. As far as some of the looting and the vandalism and the, the arson and stuff, I think it's important to hold space for the black and brown and the native youth that we're out there setting it off. Not just make it about what some white people are being opportunistic about and like, nah, we have that rage. Don't right. forget that it's coming from the fact that y'all were killing us. Right. Here's Lorraine again. Lorraine is a member of the Minneapolis Baldies who lives in Seattle currently. As far as ARA being part of mm-hmm. that creation, I just distinctly remember us mm-hmm. being in the Walker Library. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thinking yeah. a big circle and we're thinking of names and thinking of things. Mm-hmm. Personally, I've tried to live ARA like um, through different mediums. Mm-hmm. Like instead of me telling, going out and addressing groups or strangers or Mm. people or checking people, really using it in my daily interactions with humans. Yeah. But in different formats, um, Mm -hmm. in like 2004, Mm -hmm. I got actually saved and baptized Uh in a Walker Chapel First AME Mm -hmm. church. Wow. And all my studies, and I studied other stuff actually after leaving Minneapolis, I was studying Mm -hmm. stuff in South Dakota and Mm -hmm. different cultures and religions. And Mm -hmm. the one common message I found in all my studies, and I'm not a degree holder and I haven't Mm -hmm. finished much college, but you know, it's that the only thing that can change this hatred is love. That was a hard lesson for me to learn because I've also learned there's a time and place for everything. If I were confronted, let's say, in a similar situation with white knights or Nazis, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it would have to get violent, mm-hmm. probably. But everything I've studied so far, yeah. <laughs> and by my experience too, is you get a lot more change through loving this someone's shit mm-hmm. personally i haven't had to love a nazi out of being <laughs> preggy <laughs> racist so right. i don't know how it works to that degree right right mm-hmm. i have a lot more hope for our kids if we can raise them better yeah 
I like to say chain cashed in my I for an M instead mm-hmm. of oi, it's om <laughs> for me. Yeah. Seriously, but I have a temper and I get mad yeah. and I do sometimes I think people still need their ass kicked. But yeah. I don't think that's gonna um. solve it. We were born for this moment. So like, let's be present and work with what we have. You know, know these other motherfuckers, they're fucking cavemen. (laughs) All the shit they say about us to justify the dehumanization that leads to the extermination of people, which is like what their whole project about, that's actually the mirror they're holding up to themselves, you know? What I notice more than anything is the middle-class white kids are finally waking up and understanding what white privilege actually means you can say it up and down and they don't get it but now they're actually seeing it firsthand with trump this is jay again aka gator i mean the stuff with antifa i think is really interesting where they're like ara was the first antifa and i was like well there's been a lot of people fighting racism and fascism for a long time even before us we i mean we knew back then it's the only way you can deal with these clowns man or they'll just try to get over on you the things that it takes to create community defense should be ongoing processes anyway. And it's only through committing to long-term work that we start to get used to what we're up to and it's not such a shock anymore. And I think it's, it's then when our imaginations can visualize, okay, well, what other, what other ways can we apply the relationships and the skills that we're not even considering right now because we're just always responding to something. I don't have the answers, but what I do know is that the answers are going to come from me working with people. The clarity that I'm getting is when I'm in rooms with people who are all thinking critically. And I love being part of that work because it's bigger than me as an individual. And I feel that there's a truth and the authenticity to the clarity that's coming out of those moments. that's not really available when I'm just thinking about me. People are are developing clarity together that wouldn't be available if we weren't going through this. The best thing you can do is increase community. The way that you can increase community is through ownership. And that's owning your community, owning your stake of of the rock. Everyone takes care of those people. You know who's in that circle. You know what you're protecting. You know what you're fighting for. I typically say ownership. I think I bring it back to the most basic element, ownership connotates owning yourself, owning your thoughts, owning your actions, and being right and knowing knowing the difference. It might be a little bit more esoteric than what most people want to hear because it's not something they can do today. Yeah. It's something you have to practice over time and be disciplined about. What life has shown me is that those are the only things that really matter at the end of the day. Each person has to take ownership mm-hmm. and has to be willing to plant their flag and stand for that flag. That was Mo Bonix, and here's Marty. I just go back to the core principles of ARA, education, direct action. In the the large sense, a lot of us as Americans, black and white, we all need political education. Us are still stuck in the opulence of the 80s, in this Cosby era's mentality of prosperity and and projecting ourselves into some middle class lifestyle that basically ain't based on reality, how we really living out here. So I think it just goes back to education. A lot of us need political education. Who are you? Who are your ancestors? What do they contribute to the building of this country? I'm not looking to Africa. I'm not looking back to the motherland in terms of redress and reparations, that sort of thing. I'm looking to this country and my ancestors built. 
need to defend my citizenship here, we help build the first world, first world economy. And we need to be compensated with that. It goes back to education, a solid political foundation, intellectual framework where you can articulate yourself and who you are and the role your ancestors laid in, in building this bitch, right? And also direct action. I don't think Nazis and fascists and, and right-wingers need to be coddled, debated with, reasoned with. When you get to that point, I think individuals like that only respond to violence. I don't think they, they have the right to speak. Giving them the right to speak basically denies you the right to exist. Again, here's Malachi. At the end of the day, man, I want everybody to to have what they need in order to enjoy their life on this planet, bro. Mm-hmm. Period. Nobody should infringe on anybody else's right to life. If you're doing that, you need to stop or get the fuck out the way. And again, when the bully is like in the room, fucking up all the kids, at some point, the people in the room have to check the bully. Period. Because the bully is unchecked. The bully ain't gonna stop themselves. Agreed. That's the scary part because you're like, you know that they have the self-destructive tendency right. to be like, well, I'm in charge, so I'm taking everybody with me. Correct. And that's what the arms race and all that is. That's not a solution. Correct. When we were effective at what we were doing in the 80s, it's cause we were, we were kids, man. And we were friends first. And so we spent most of the hours of the day together. We went everywhere together. We hung out together. Uh, we loved each other, man. And so that was the energy that we brought to the struggle. In this society that we live in, it's based on, you know, the commodification of human labor and splitting everybody into units and the nuclear family and all that kind of shit. You know, once people grow up and they get a career and they get money, they move on. And their self-interest about their little bubble becomes a priority in a way that actually doesn't build community. And so figuring out ways to do that, it's crucial. And this thing about the older activists, we actually have a responsibility right now to come out of our bubbles and come into activity with some of these younger people that are newer, because all we got is each other. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of It Did Happen Here. There are show notes with links, transcripts, and other relevant content at our website, itdidhappenherepodcast.com. You can listen to the full podcast and other bonus episodes at the KBU website, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and other major podcast platforms. In this episode, interviews were by Anna Stitt, Soul, and Mike Crenshaw, and your hosts were Selena Flores and Mike Crenshaw. This podcast is produced by Selena, Mike, and me, Aaron Yankee. Music in this episode is by Anatech and the Neighborhood Cults, made available by the Free Music Archive. Thanks to the bands for the music. Thanks to the participants for sharing their stories and experiences. And thanks to the Marla Davis Fund, KBU Community Radio, and to the rest of our production team, Ikie, Julie Perini, and Mo Baustern. And thank you for listening. <laughs>